starting today called Come Let Us Reason. You know what that's a picture of? That's Paul. Who knew that somebody took a picture of Paul at the Areopagus? We read about that in Acts chapter 17. So he's on Mars Hill um, preaching the gospel uh, to the philosophers on Mars Hill. And uh, we're going to entitle this little series, Come Let Us Reason. And uh, let me begin by putting up two books. There's a book that was written by an author named Mark Knoll called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. It was written in 1994. Uh, Every review I've ever read of the book says it's a great book. The opening sentence of Mark Knoll's book is this. The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. All right. Same year, 1994, Oz Guinness wrote this book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. All right. If that's not enough of an insult, um, R.C. Sproul has said this, We live in what may be the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Western civilization. This year, a fellow named John Piper published a book simply entitled, Think. Here's the gist of the book. It's okay to think. (laughs) It's okay as Christians to think. In fact, it's a little stronger than that. The, The point of the book is this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And you can't be deeply satisfied in Christ without being a deep thinker. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. All right. So we can't just say, I love emotional worship. I love a experience with God, not so big on thinking. Right? Being rigorous in our thinking is part of loving God and worshiping God. I mentioned uh, a while back I was listening to a sermon by a, a fellow named Paul Washer. And um, he uh, has, in his education, has gone to seminary, graduate school, studied Greek and Hebrew, uh, and he studied philosophy, but somebody gave him a book. And uh, he started reading this book, and he said it was one of the most complex books on logic he had ever seen. And he looked at the book, and he realized it was a really old book, and it had a picture of school children on the front of it. It was from the colonial period, and it was a grade school primer on logic. And he, he said, what, what used to be taught in grade school, it's no longer taught today. You can go through your entire uh, educational career grade school, junior high, high school, college, graduate school, and never really be taught the basics of how to think, how to reason. So those are what the scholars think of of, uh, how Christians think. Let me just give you some personal anecdotes. A while back I went to Panera Bread in Batavia, and I was eating my sandwich, 
and uh, right next to me was a table. There were three guys there. And uh, two of the guys were talking about this Bible study that they were in, and they were telling the third guy about it, kind of recruiting him to be part of this Bible study. And they were saying, now, this is kind of an elite group. And um, it's not your every ordinary, everyday ordinary Bible study. We go really deep. We hold each other accountable. You have to do the homework. And I'm like, all right, these guys are holding one another accountable, and they're studying deep. And then they started talking about the book they were, were reading and studying. And the guy said, this thing is so challenging, it's going to revolutionize your life. And I'm like, what in the world are they studying? A book by John Owen? You know, or Jonathan Edwards? Well, they were studying this book, Your Best Life Now. Yeah, I'd drop my communion cup too if I... <laughs> I dropped my sandwich right there. <laughs> what, uh, what's so funny is Michael Horton has written a book called Christless Christianity. And in it, he's saying the evangelical church today is very, very little different than the Oprah show, where you watch Oprah and you learn a few helpful tips for your life. You turn on Joel or read one of his books. Uh, Practical tips for how to live a better life, positive mental attitude. Um, Not a whole lot of cross in the book. In fact, zero cross in the book. So for these guys to think they were going really, really deep, they were just fooling themselves. Can I help you, sir? Okay. (laughs) Um, It reminds me of a study that was done. They they did a worldwide study of... um, eighth grade math students. And what they discovered is that Korean students are miles ahead of American students. Then they did another survey asking um, how well these students thought they were doing in math. Only 6% of the Koreans thought they were doing well, but close to 40% of the American kids thought they were doing well. So we're not real smart, but we we think we're doing really well when it comes to math. What these guys are saying, you know, the authors that I quoted, is we're not thinking that deeply today. Now, let me introduce another book. I just checked yesterday where it is on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, Now, they have different categories, hardcover, softcover. They don't have a religion section. They have a self-improvement section. Number one book in the self-improvement section is a diet book. Uh, it's called the Duncan Diet. I was excited. I thought it was like, go to Dunkin' Donuts, and it's the, the guy's name is Duncan, so it's not about that. So, man, was Ryan? I was going to call you and say, let's do this diet. <laughs> he would curse. He would spit. He would, you know. All right. So there's the Duncan Diet. Number two book, the 17-day diet. Okay. Third book. Love Wins by Rob Bell. Okay. Now, um, yes, I would agree. Okay. Um, number three book in the New York Times bestseller. All the young people are reading this book. Okay. I'm going to use this book for all of my examples as we learn about logical fallacies. Okay. Let me explain why. 
Um, first of all, let me tell you about a, uh, a review. first guy to review this book, at least in the circles I live in, was a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He's a Presbyterian minister uh, who <laughs> lives in the same town as Rob Bell. And um, here's, here's his review. The theology is heterodox. You know, there's orthodox, which is accurate, and then there's heterodox. It's, it's a nicer way of saying heretical. Um, the history is inaccurate. The impact on souls is devastating. And the use of scripture is indefensible. Worst of all, love wins, demeans the cross, and misrepresents God's character. Now, other than that, it's a pretty good read. <laughs> right? You say, well, well, what's it about? Well, here in another paragraph, he pretty much sums up the book. Here's the gist. Hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. Notice that hell is not about God pouring out his wrath and punishing sinners. It's what we create for ourselves. Okay? Hell is both a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who die unready for God's love. Hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy. And he kind of hints at the fact that heaven and hell are in the same place. It's just you can't enjoy it until you fully embrace God's love. Okay? How can... Uh, oh, then, then here's the, the big part. But hell is not forever. God will have his way. How can his good purposes fail? Every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. There will be no eternal conscious torment. God says no to injustice in the age to come, but he does not pour out wrath. We bring the temporary sufferings upon ourselves, and he certainly does not punish for eternity. In the end, love wins. Now, Bell has a, uh, has a little problem, though, because he's an extreme Arminian, and he still wants to preserve human freedom. So theoretically, God may not win because there may still be a person in hell who still refuses to give in to God. But the gist of the book is that hell will one day be emptied. In other words, take your time. You don't need to make a decision for Christ now. You've got all of eternity to make a decision. Okay? So um, you go, well, Pastor Brian, you, you seem a little bothered by Rob Bell. Um, well, let me tell you why I am so disturbed. First of all, I teach at Moody, and I know kids are reading this book. Secondly, we sent our kid on a trip, a marine biology trip, on a bus full of Christian homeschool kids. I mean, these aren't just, uh, these are kids who have Christian parents who um, are te they're teaching them the Bible, and these are the elite, and Caleb gets on the bus and it's full of Love Wins bumper stickers on their luggage and guitar cases, and everybody loved Rob Bell. They've got the Love Wins T-shirts. Um, we have a generation of kids who's buying this stuff. All right. So I want to use Love Wins as a more relevant example of how to spot logical fallacies. So we're going we're gonna to study um, thinking mistakes that we make when it comes to thinking through the scriptures or hearing people teach the Bible. Now, my original plan was to take D.A. Carson's book. I had D.A. Carson for a teacher back in seminary, and I consider him to be like the smartest man on the planet. Um, but he has a book called Exegetical Fallacies. 
And in this book, he talks about mistakes we can make when we do word studies in Scripture, when we look at the grammar in Scripture, and just when we think. And he calls that chapter logical fallacies. Now, there are 18 logical fallacies that he covers. Now, what I discovered as I searched more logical fallacies on the Internet, I found that there are over 100 logical fallacies that we can fall into. If you Google list of fallacies, it'll take you to Wikipedia and give you a list of over 100 logical fallacies that you can fall into. Now, I learned about some new logical fallacies. My favorite one um, is called reducto ad Hitlerium, and that is playing the Hitler card. Okay? In fact, where's, where's Barb today? Can I pick on you, Barb? Okay. Just, like, let's say Barb and I were arguing, okay, and, and she was outdoing me. I would just say, yeah, well, Hitler drove a Volkswagen. Oh, well, yeah, his wasn't green. <laughs> that is the reductio ad Hitlerium. Just compare the person to Hitler and you win, right? So that's the type of thing we're going to do. I, I want to make you aware of some, some reasoning, some thinking fallacies, and the goal isn't to pick on Rob Bell, though it is to, uh, by the time you're done with this series, I hope you don't have a whole lot of respect for this book, okay? But I want to give you, rather than D.A. Carson's older illustrations, a more up-to-date contemporary example right in your bookstore today of some pretty bad logical fallacies, okay? So here we go. I'm going to give you four of them today. The first one is called obfuscation. That's a very confusing word that means confusing them. It means to confuse people, to make something difficult. Okay? Now, right from the beginning, the first logical fallacy I'm giving you is not really a logical fallacy. It's more of a way to win an argument. Okay? But since we can be uh, confused when somebody uses this tactic, we can commit logical fallacies. We can get confused and fall into bad thinking. So I'm going to include obfuscation as, uh, as a logical fallacy. Okay? Now, um, there's two ways a communicator can obfuscate. Accidentally or on purpose. Right? Now, the first chapter of this book, Love Wins, obfuscates, confuses the simple truth that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Right? His, by the time you're done, you're confused about how to be saved. Now, I sure hope that Rob Bell is doing this accidentally. Because if he is purposely trying to confuse you about the gospel, then the warning of Galatians applies to him. The NIV, Galatians 1.7 says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, we apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. So, you know, to sell books or to, to win an argument, if you purposely confuse people about the gospel, you literally have hell to pay. So I hope he, I hope he actually believes his confusing stuff 
and isn't just doing it as an argumentative tactic to win his argument. Okay? Now, um, what, he, what he does is he gives about a dozen New Testament examples of salvation, and he tries to make you question how they're saved. And he tries to make you see that they're not saved by faith. Okay? Now, you go, okay, so is he arguing that you're saved by works? No. He's just trying to muddy the water and confuse us. In fact, he's not trying to say you're saved by works. I think he's trying to go the opposite direction to say you're not even necessarily saved by faith. You're saved by grace. And God's going to save everybody. So rather than narrowing it and saying you're saved by works, I think he's just trying to confuse everybody and introduce his view of salvation by love wins. Okay? So let me just quickly go over the first three. He talks about the centurion. Remember, the centurion goes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick, can you heal him? And Jesus says, sure, I'll go to your house. And he says, no, 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 just say the word and my servant will be healed. So he says something, and Jesus' response is he's amazed at his faith. So he says something. Just remember that. The centurion says something. Jesus is amazed. Right? The tax collector and the Pharisee go into the temple. The tax collector says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says he goes home justified. So he says something, and he's saved. The thief on the cross turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So... Here's what Bell does after he examines these three, or quickly touches on these three things. He says, so is it what you say that saves you? So he gives you three examples of three people who say something, they're saved, and he is trying to make you think, oh, it's what you say, or at least confuse you, are you saved by saying something? Now, he goes on to give a whole bunch more, but let me introduce another logical fallacy the the umbrella one is obfuscation but there's there's other ones under it the second one is cause and effect confusion or or call it root and fruit confusion not distinguishing between the root and the fruit now when you study the whole of scripture it becomes very clear that when you're born again when god gives you spiritual life that produces faith in you faith in christ then that's, that's the cause, the basis of your salvation. But the fruit of your salvation is you will say things to the glory of God and do things to the glory of God. Right? Your words and your works will reflect your faith. And, and I believe this, that your faith will persevere over your entire life. Okay? So um, Paul spells it out very clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For By grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. So you're not saved by works. You're saved by faith so that no one can boast. But then he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved by good works, but the fruit, the result of your salvation is good works. So you could picture it this way. Regeneration is God giving you new life. That produces faith in you. From that faith flows words and works and perseverance. Okay? This, this is the root. The words, the works, and the perseverance are the fruit. Now, not every passage 
delineates it as clearly as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, because not every uh, passage is giving us a systematic theology of salvation. Sometimes just the faith is, is pointed out. Other times the works are pointed out. Other times the perseverance is pointed out, right? But Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 spells out the big picture of salvation. So now Bell goes on and he gives, adds to these three examples, the story of Nicodemus, where Jesus says to him, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And then he takes us to an argument that Jesus has with the Sadducees. And Jesus refers to taking part in the age to come. Right? There's this age and the age to come. And he talks about those who are worthy of taking part in the age to come. So then what Bell does is he says this. So is it about being born again or being considered worthy? Is it what you say or what you are that saves you? Right? Now, now wait a minute. If, if you have your Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 verse down, you know that you must be born again. God gives you spiritual life. That's the cause. The result then would be the good works. And those who are worthy of taking part in the age to come, who are those who are worthy? Isn't it those who first realize they're not worthy and then they trust in Christ and Christ gives us his righteousness and now as a Christian you are worthy, not based on your own worthiness, but on Christ's worthiness. So nothing, none of these examples contradict the fact that you are saved by faith alone and faith will produce works. Okay? He goes on and gives us these three verses. Forgiveness. Matthew 6.15, after the Lord's Prayer, he says, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, quid pro quo here. God won't forgive you unless you first forgive somebody else. Right? A lot of people stumble on this. But this is exactly what we were talking about at communion. When you, are, when you first trust in Christ, you are justified. You don't lose your justification, but you have a relationship with your father that needs attention. And if you dig in and say, I'm not going to forgive somebody, that relationship with God, it's not terminated, but it's damaged. But I don't think this is talking about justification. Then there's Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one, uh, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Now, there you go. See, you're saved by works. No, you're saved by faith, which then produces doing God's will. And what this is saying is only those who are truly saved as evidenced by doing good works will go to heaven. Right? Then there's enduring. In Matthew 10:22, Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, all that is saying is true faith will persevere to the end. But what does Bell say? He wants to confuse the reader. He says, is it what you say or whether we do the will of God or if we stand firm or not? Okay. Let me keep going. Talks about Zacchaeus, little tax collector, climbs up in a tree. Jesus says, we're doing lunch at your house, right? Which is why the pastor never pays for lunch, right? So, um... It's in the Bible, right? Exegetical fallacies, right? There's one, okay. 
And you should come back and say, only if you're a short little Jewish guy up in a tree. So um, Zacchaeus goes to Jesus' house, and he announces, I'm going to give half of my money to the poor and pay back four times if I've ever ripped anybody off. And Bell says this. Um, So is it what we say, who we are, or what we do, or is it what we say we're going to do? Because he makes this pledge that he's going to do this. Then he gives the example of the paralytic. Remember, Jesus is teaching, and they let down, four friends let down this guy on a mat. And Jesus, seeing their faith, says, your sins are forgiven. So now he asks the question, uh, is it what you say? Is it who you are? Is it what you do, what you say you're going to do? Or is it who your friends are and what your friends do? Because it appears that that he's being forgiven based on their faith. And the only problem is their includes him. Right? They all had faith, and he's the one who, who came. So uh, he's the one who, who Jesus is talking to, but his sins are forgiven based on his faith. Right? And then he goes really wacky on us. Uh, he, he takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says, if, if you're in a bad marriage and you're saved but your spouse is not saved, don't divorce. Why? For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So then he says, so, are you saved by what you say, what you do, what you do, or who you're married to? Now, wait a minute. This is not saying you're automatically saved by marriage. What it's saying is you hang in there, or how do you know whether you save your spouse? How do you save your spouse? The way you save anybody, by preaching the gospel or living the gospel. This isn't salvation by marriage, it's salvation by witnessing. Okay? Then, here's a tough one, childbirth, 1 Timothy 2.15, yet she will be saved through childbearing, the woman, the quiet woman, right? Uh, if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. So are you saved by who you're married to, who your friends are, or by giving birth? There is nobody who believes you're saved by giving birth. Okay, in fact, this is one of my questions for my class at Moody. What does it mean that you'll be saved by childbearing? And one option is that saved there doesn't have to mean salvation from hell. It can mean rescued from something else, from role reversal. Remember, they reversed roles uh, in in the Ephesian church. Or it could be, um, saved could be talking about not justification, but persevering. She perseveres in the Christian life by doing what, Women are called to do, and men doing what men are called to do, right? But he gives all these examples, and you're left to go, wow, maybe I was wrong about salvation by faith alone. Boy, dastardly. Do you see what this book is doing? Oh, it's such a great book. No. It will send your soul to hell. Now, let me give you... uh, Let me give you a third exegetical fallacy. Selective evidence. All right, selective evidence, or another variation, secondary evidence. If you are going to write a chapter on salvation, I think you as a pastor, as a leader, as an author, are obligated to first go to those passages that directly teach about salvation. 
What does he do? He goes to these tangential passages and builds his theology of questioning salvation by faith alone. I always like to explain it this way. Let's say, um, let's say your brakes go bad in your car and you want to fix them yourself. So you take out the owner's manual. And you go, I am going to figure out how to fix the brakes. But, and there's a whole chapter on brakes. But you say, I'm not going to even look at the chapter on brakes. I'm going to go to the index. And any time brakes are referred to in other chapters, I'm going to read that paragraph. And I'm going to build my theology of how to fix my brakes on these tangential passages. You go, that's crazy. Why don't you just read the chapter on breaks? Well, that's what he's done. He's built his theology of confused salvation on tangential passages that don't even talk about salvation. Primarily, you should go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 and exegete that. Or how about this? In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer comes running into Paul's cell, and so Paul and Silas, and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Hey, wouldn't that be a good passage to look at? He asked the question, how do you get saved around here? Answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. No mention of it. Okay? Or how about this one? Even the guy with the hair goes to sports games and holds up John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, he not only does this with Scripture, but with history. Okay? Because not only do you want to build your case for your new theology from the Bible, but you want, you want to find somebody from church history that says, this guy believes the way I do. You know, a really good guy to go to would be Luther. Man, if you could get Luther to be on your side, you got a bunch of Lutheran people with Lutheran background. If, if Luther believed that you could be saved out of hell, wouldn't that be great? So he quotes, Bell quotes a letter that Luther wrote to a friend, and a friend asked him, do you think it's possible for God to save people after they die in hell? And here's what Luther writes. Who would doubt God's ability to do that? Luther thinks it's possible for God to do that. But what Bell doesn't quote is the very next sentence. No one, however, can prove that he does do this. It'd be like, you know, let's say we have youth group and one of the kids says, oh, Pastor, um, do you think it's possible that God could create a planet made entirely of cheese? Yeah. Possible. There's no, there's no proof that he has done that. And they go home. Pastor said it's possible that God has created a planet in our solar system made entirely of cheese. Like, it's ridiculous, right? That's not what I think of the youth group kids. That's what I think of my own kids. Okay. <laughs> he does this. Um, he, he, again, he's trying to portray the fact that he, he tries to portray himself as not out of the mainstream, but in the mainstream. Here's another quote. And so, beginning with the early church, there's a long tradition of Christians who believe that God will ultimately restore everything and everybody. This is mainstream stuff, folks. God's going to save everybody, is what he's trying to convince you of. Well, all you've got to do is pick up a, 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 histor- a, you know, a historian church history, um, such as Richard Buckham's, 
historical survey written in 78. This is not in response to Bell. This is written long before Bell was born, probably. Well, I don't know. Until the 19th century, almost all Christian theologians taught the reality of eternal torment in hell. Here and there, outside the theological mainstream, were some who believed that the wicked would be finally annihilated. Even fewer were the advocates of universal salvation, though these few included some major theologians of the early church. Eternal punishment was firmly asserted in official creeds and confessions of the churches. It must have seemed as indisputable a part of the universal Christian belief as the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. So that is uh, an example of selective evidence. He's building his case from a few select verses and a few selections out of church history and giving them to a a generation of of people who don't read their Bible. And they walk away going, well, well, a Christian publisher published this book. And he says this is mainstream stuff. And he quoted verses. So it must be true. It's selective evidence. Now, let me give you one last one. One last one. No distinctions. No distinctions. What do I mean by that? Have you ever been talking to somebody, and even though you're using the same words, you have different definitions for those words? And you find out that, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about the same thing, but we're not talking about the same thing. Well, he does one more thing here where he makes reference to demons who believe in James 2.19. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here, demons have orthodox faith in Christ, but they're not saved. So here's a case where faith doesn't save. Right? And then he goes on and talks about the woman who walks into the dinner party and Jesus is there. She cries all over his feet and then wipes, uh, wipes his feet with her hair. And he says this. So demons believe and washing Jesus' feet with your tears gets your sins forgiven. No, it's her faith that gets her sins forgiven and that was followed by her actions. But what's he doing with the demons? He's saying, see, faith, belief in Jesus doesn't necessarily save. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The whole context of James 2 is about making a distinction between true faith and false faith. Saving faith and non-saving faith. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, that kind of faith, workless faith, save him? No. There's saving faith and non-saving faith. And an example of non-saving faith is demonic faith. But to pull that verse out of context to confuse you, to show you that faith doesn't save. Bad stuff. Bad stuff. Do not be fooled by it. So, what have we learned? Well, 
we've learned that God gave us brains and we're to use them to think, to glorify him through rigorous thinking. We can fall into thinking errors. We covered four today. One is obfuscation. Just when, we, when somebody tries to confuse us, maybe even with true facts, but tries to confuse us with those facts. Be careful of obfuscation. Secondly, be careful that you don't mix up cause and effect. Faith and works. Right? Keep the cause and effect separate. Thirdly, selective evidence. Wow, they've built a good case, but have they ignored a bunch of, of uh, more direct evidence? And then thirdly, making no distinctions. The same word can mean different things in different contexts. And be careful not to pull it over by saying, oh, demons have faith, they're not saved, therefore faith doesn't work. It's not that hard, folks. If you've you've read this book or if, if you say, I don't know what to believe, here's the truth. You're not good enough to get into heaven. We are all sinners in need of somebody to save us. God became a man. He died on a cross to pay for your sins. And all who turn from sin and trust in Christ, not in your own good works, if you trust in Him, receive Him as your Savior and Lord, that's faith in Him. You're placing your confidence in Him. He will save you. You're accepted before God based on on faith alone. And then you know what will happen? Your life will change. Your words will change. Your actions will change. That's the evidence of your salvation, not the cause of it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that it is so clear. Yet, Lord, we have a demonic enemy who does not want us to see the clarity and the beauty of your gospel. So, so Lord, I pray that you would take away the error and the confusion and enable us to think in a way that truly brings glory to you. Um, Show us how to not fall prey to these, these logical thinking errors. And may we glorify you with the way we handle your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.